Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 2nd of July, 2022 Hong Kong Stories Podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Travel was once so easy, wasn't it? It's considerably more complex now, especially for us denizens of this fine city. As we finish off a weekend filled with typhoon chaos to add to travel complications, many of us will be feeling slightly less envious about missing out on that international travel, for a few days at least. This week, as we breathe the fresher air the tail of the typhoon blows around us, we'll be listening to a story from Vincent that was recorded in the studio way back in 2020. After Vincent's story, we'll re-listen to a story from Josiane about her travel plans. Before we get to today's stories, though, a huge and breezy hug goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. We hear you, Hong Kong, and we are listening. Windy greetings go out to our overseas listeners as well. This week in particular to listeners in Jamaica Plain in Maryland in the USA, Taiyuan District in Taiwan, and Brussels in Belgium. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our January Turn to June show was absolutely fabulous, if I do say so myself. It was so very good to be back on stage again, with stories being told and real people laughing and listening along with us. Thanks again to the storytellers and to the audience who make all of this possible. And if you haven't tried storytelling yourself yet, get involved by going to a workshop. You can find the details on our webpage at hongkongstories.com or email us. The email is also on the website, hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. Now, with the story told live on stage, but recorded afterwards in the studio due to technical difficulties in 2020, here is Vincent. I'm a 20-year-old British student. I have a summer job working in a travel agent in the amazing city of Athens. I spend my nights in the youth hostel, a bunk bed in a hot and sticky shared room. It's cheap. I often sleep on the roof. It's cooler up there. I get paid peanuts, but my boss, Christos, begrudgingly promises me a complimentary bus trip back to London. I leave my job with the money that I did mark for the bus trip and I take a holiday on the island of Eos. I sleep on the beach and have a super relaxing break. I go back to Athens and meet Christos to reserve my place on the bus and he says, Fine, no problem, except all the buses are fully booked for two weeks. They're all overbooked. Here's your ticket. There's no discussion. Come back in two weeks. I sit down. My head begins to swim. My world is upside down. I have ten pounds in traveller's checks to last me for two weeks in Athens. It's no use asking Christos to help. He's a real Scrooge. How can I manage that? My mind is a flurry of crazy thoughts. 
How can I survive for two weeks in Athens? Staying in the hostel is out of the question. I wander around in a daze. It's late. I finally settle in a shop doorway, away from the hustle and bustle. I'm tossing and turning for a long time and finally drift off to sleep. I wake up to find a boot kicking me in the chest and someone is shouting. I look up to see a gun pointing at me. I'm looking at the barrel of a Greek soldier's gun. My God, it's the end. Newspaper headlines. Student found dead in shop doorway. A lady passing by diffuses the situation. Get up. You can't sleep there. I get up really quickly. The soldier stands aside. I leave. My heart is pounding. I head for the youth hostel. I sit down, mentally exhausted, and I tell my story to a fellow traveller. Sell your blood, he advises. You can get at least £10, usually more. Sell my blood? I think about it for a while, and I decide to do it. I get to the blood bank with crazy thoughts going on in my mind. But what if they take too much? What... What if, what if they bleed me dry? They take a small sample and I start to relax. And then they inform me they don't need my blood. I'm confused. Your blood group B rhesus positive. Sorry, we have enough. I can send a telegram to my dad. And he can, he can wire me some money. But then I picture him opening the telegram hands shaking, fearing the worse, fumbling with the telegram. He's going to think, he's going to think I'm dead. Maybe, maybe he'll have a heart attack. I dismiss this immediately. Funny, I'm in a deep shit and I'm so considerate. I must be going mad. I go to the British Embassy. Yes, sir, no problem. We can repatriate you. We'll pay for you to get back to London. A solution. However, he said, we'll put a big stamp in your passport to say that you've been repatriated and future travel will be very difficult for you. Future travel? I think of all the exotic places I've never been to. The Middle East, Asia, US, South America. I decide against it. I'm in a real mess, but I'm thinking about my future travel. So crazy. I wander around in a daze, and finally I decide to head back to the youth hostel. The doors are closed for the night. I jump over the wall and go up to the roof to sleep. A deep sleep. I'm safe here. I get up. My nerves are completely frazzled. I'm at my wit's end. I start to read the hostel notice board. What's this? Driving back to London. Leaving tomorrow. Space for one other. Share the cost. No time wasters. Chuck. Share the cost. Leaving tomorrow. What an opportunity. But no way to share the cost. Wouldn't even get as far as Yugoslavia with that. No way can this work. So near and yet so far. 
Looks like repatriation is the only way out. I decide to contact Chuck anyway. What do I have to lose? I find him, he's eating breakfast. He's got a friendly face. Sit down, he says. Maybe my luck is in. My confidence goes up. I explain, I need to get back to London. I have no money. I'll send you the money as soon as I get back to the UK. His eyes drop. You can trust me. I'm honest, I blurt out. He says nothing. And he looks He looks at me in a very non-friendly way. A look that says, You're wasting my time. The conversation is over. Dejected, I move to another table to plan my trip to the embassy. Vincent. Yes, Chuck? I'm leaving tomorrow, whatever. And so far I have no takers for the trip back to London. A flicker of a chance. Maybe I'll find... Maybe I'll find someone before I leave. My heart sinks. For sure he'll find someone. So many people in this hostel. However, he says, I'm going to take a chance on you. My prayers are answered. Now, how did I manage to miss a story like that? I am glad that Vincent managed to get back home, record this podcast, and that I found it again, lurking in my archives. Don't forget you can have a go at developing your own story too with our free workshops. Now with another story about travel from way back in 2019, here is Josie Ann. Like many of you here tonight, I I am fortunate enough to have traveled extensively in my life. I've been to Italy several times, but I only managed to get to Venice for the first time last year. That said, my uh, relationship with that city spanned 40 years. When I was 70 years old, and I'm sure you're calculating already how old I am, when I, <laughs> older, when I was 7 or 8 years old, uh, my father had the opportunity to relocate from our native Belgium to Nigeria in Africa. Now, it was at a time of an economic downturn, and my father was not very proficient at negotiating contract. That means that we moved to Nigeria as migrants rather than as expatriates. In other words, he didn't earn enough money to to support a family of four, buy a new car, hire a driver, and send his eldest daughter to private education in Nigeria. So very reluctantly, my parents sent me back home to Belgium to boarding school. Now, unlike today, when I was eight, I was very shy. I was very mature, probably like today, and uh, I was not prepared to living away from my family for that long. So it was a very difficult time, and that's the only part of the sub story, I promise. Um, I was very homesick. I cried a lot. I was missing my mother. I was a mummy's girl. Christmas came. I was flown to, to, to Nigeria within three weeks, and it was pure bliss. I played with my sister. I spent time with my mom. Hugged her a lot, the kind of things you do with your parents. And like everything else, that holiday came to an end. And on the last day, on the way to the airport, I, you know, started sobbing, as you do at eight years old, in the car, very discreetly. And by the time we got to the airport, by the time we got to the gate, it turned out in a full-blown tear fest. Both my mom and I were just eyeing our balls out, very, very heartbroken. I know it's funny, but it wasn't. 
And my father didn't see the funny side or the side side of it at all. He was deeply embarrassed. My father had many great qualities, but empathy was not one of them. So he instructed my mother to just pull herself together and sort me out as well because everybody was watching. But it's a bit like in the Dominican Republic. In Nigeria, everybody shows their emotions, so nobody cared. Only he did. So my mom composed herself very bravely and then decided to change my, my, my mindset as well. And she adopted a very clever strategy with, with me, which was appeal to my sense of adventure. So she told me that if I was a good girl, a strong girl, if I worked really hard at school, stop crying today, um, we would go in June at the end of the school holidays to an amazing place called Venice in Italy. So I have no idea whether you know what Venice is. I had no idea. And at that point in time, it was like I couldn't care less either. But my mom explained to me what it was like, and it was something like this. Venice is that amazing city in Italy. It's a magical city because it's built on 100 islands. And basically, it was built a long, long time ago. It's a very, very ancient city where the buildings look like they're floating on water. There are no streets in Venice, only canals. There's a grand canal that is wider than a motorway. You've got many smaller canals where the houses are so close to each other that you can see the laundry lines basically hanging between the two sets of houses, and you can see laundry drying. You can go and see the vaporettos, which are the buses in Venice, but you can also go on the gondolas where you have people with men with straw hats and stripy T-shirts and, and black uh, uh, trousers. You have the palazios where prince, of course, used to live and princesses. And then you have this carnival once a year where you've got amazing, amazing people dressing up with the ladies with the huge wigs and big taffeta dresses. Now, I was dreaming and then part of me was thinking, how do they manage with the water? But I didn't want to interrupt her. So we continued. She was speaking to me, and as she continued to, to explain very vividly, and I'm sure she was making half of it up, she just captured my imagination, and I stopped crying for long enough to board the plane. So that was at Christmas time. Then, obviously, about five minutes after I left my mom, I started crying again, as you do when you're an eight-year-old. And when I went back to school, I just proceeded to very dutifully listen to my mother, who said, whenever you feel homesick, think about Venice. I took it one step further because I was trying to be an overachiever already and thought I would do some research on Venice as well. Now, I was born last century before the Internet and the Google. So in those days, <laughs> when you wanted to do the research, you had to show commitment and go, and go, you know what I mean, right? And go to the library. So that took a lot of effort. And the wonderful thing, of course, it was extremely healing. So I learned about Venice and daydreamed about Venice and got in trouble as well. But that's a different story. And as the time went by, I learned a lot more about Venice. And I really really wanted to go. I learned about the culture, the history, the architecture, the prince. And when I didn't like the story, I made it myself as well. And the end of the year came, June came, and I was so excited for two reasons. One, of course, I was going to see my family, especially mom. Two, we're going to go to Venice. That was so exciting. So on the day that my parents were supposed to arrive, my little sister, I was at my granddad's, you know, checking out on the window, quite laid back, but in an excited kind of way. And the taxi pulled up, my parents came out, jumped out and just, you know, hoping to someone will, will collect me, which they did. We, we did what people do when they, they, they see each other after many months. And after all the questions were answered, I had shown my, my school report, the suitcase was emptied. I was finally able to ask the, the question that was burning my lips. 
when are we going to go to Venice? And I noticed my mom shifting. She looked uncomfortable. And I went, Dad? And my father said, oh, we've just been. It wasn't that exciting. You didn't miss anything, and your sister's got a gondola for you. I wasn't expecting laughter. I just thought, exactly. You can feel, right? I don't need to explain. It was like, what? Now, I was a very compliant girl. I was definitely not going to challenge my father. He would not have uh, approved. But basically, time stopped, literally, at that point. And I mustered the courage to look at my father and said, you mean you went without me? I said, well, yes, it was cheaper that way. And that was that. Thank you. That's it. The healing is <laughs> So I have, I, have, um, <laughs> I have told this story many times over the past 40 years because it's my Venice story, of course. Um, and last year I was having lunch with my uh, older sons, my ex-husband and a few and a friend, and uh, we were talking about summer holidays. One started talking about their planned holidays to Italy. I thought, oh, maybe Venice. Yes, they're going to Venice, so of course. I'd keep my Venice story. And um, on the way back, my eldest son, Max, said, Mom, I don't understand. Why have you never been to Venice? I said, but you've heard that story a thousand times. He says, no, 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 not as a kid. As an adult, why have you not been to Venice? And that was the light bulb moment. It was a <laughs> yes and yes moment. <laughs> and so I'll spare you the detail, but last June, we went to Venice. Only Max came with me. But we did the sort of things that I wanted to do as a little girl. Quite a few I had forgotten, to be honest. And then we did additional, more exciting things. So one of them was taking part in a regatta called La Voga Longa. That did not exist when I was a little girl. La Voga Longa, if you don't know, uh, is a wonderful day out. If you imagine the Grand Canal over a distance of 30 kilometers for one day, no motorboats are allowed, only man-powered vessels. And you've got about 2,000 vessels, from kayaks to gondolas to even dragon boat, and boats whose name I don't know with many people on it, rowing or paddling. And it's supposed to be a kind of race, but Italian style. So it's really a day out, and you stop to eat, you stop to have spritz, you stop to have a bit of Prosecco, and maybe one too many. And my son and I rented a, a, a dual kayak, and we had the most wonderful day. And that was kind of illustrative of the whole week. So that now is my Venice story. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. <laughs>